Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Tokushikai Inside Look podcast. This episode is brought to you by our amazing patrons over at Patreon, who have generously donated as little as a cup of coffee to as much as the cost of a bowl of ramen per month. You can find episode videos for these interviews as well as deeper dives into other subject matters at patreon.com forward slash Tokushikai Canada. If you are enjoying this work, please consider supporting us. So I'm,、um, let me just start with telling you a little bit about my, my work. I work as a senior manager for corporate venturing and innovation at a company called JSR Micro. JSR is a global company. I work for the Sunnyvale office, but most of the team I work with is in the, the Tokyo office. And、uh, one of the great things about JSR is it gives me the opportunity to travel. Well, pre pandemic, it gave me the opportunity to travel often to Japan. And、uh, it really keeps my mind involved in technology and emerging technology and new startups and the energy that's involved in that space. I, I find that fascinating. So, I try to convey what some of those new ideas are into my company and get the introductions set so that if a startup company is looking for an investor or a partner and it happens to be aligned with what my company, JSR, is looking for, well, I can make a connection. So, I find that very satisfying. But alongside working, I've been doing Kudo since 1994. And before that, I did Aikido for about 10 years. And so, since my college days, just post college days, I've been quite involved in some kind of Japanese martial art. So, you, you live in、uh, California. I could see your dojo is called the Redwood Dojo. You're out in like the, I don't remember what it's called, like the San Jose kind of area. Um, yeah, we're in the, almost in Silicon Valley. We're just over the hill from Silicon Valley toward the coast. We're about halfway between San Francisco and San Jose.、Uh, the town is La Honda. And the Redwood Dojo, Redwood Q Dojo, is on Redwood property. So we're surrounded by some of the giant redwoods that run all the way from you know, northern Canada down to southern California. And、um, it's. You know, one of, the, one of the things I was looking for when building a Q Dojo or looking for a place to find a place to practice is aesthetics. And there's a beautiful serenity that you can find in the forest, especially in the Redwood Forest, that I find very peaceful. There's something about shooting an arrow in the evening when you hear the hoot of an owl in the background. Or you see a deer running up behind the Yamichi, the shooting area. And、uh, yeah, it just brings a sense of peace and energy and connectedness to, the, to nature. Yeah, there always seems to be that connection when we talk about martial arts. Ultimately, it comes down to connection with life and then connection with nature.、Uh, but you weren't originally from the West Coast here. You, were, you grew up in Minnesota. Maybe you can talk a little bit about. What that was like? Yeah, I grew up in Minnesota. It's a place of, I found it, I found it to be a very accepting culture. We were, I grew up in a family with an architect for a father,、um, teacher for our mother. And、um, there were days when, when I was growing up, it was、uh, a time of you know, discovery. My parents always encouraged me to. Try art or try music or try sports or whatever it was I wanted to do, they were really quite supportive, especially of education. So I was able to get,、uh, go to college and, and so on. But the、uh, influence from my, my early days that continues in my life today has to do with my father's、um, architecture practice. He loved Japanese architecture and gardens in particular. And he had the chance to learn from one of the greats of American architecture, that was Frank Lloyd Wright. So, my father got himself to the Taliesin studio in,、uh, in Arizona, and、uh, he was able to become an apprentice and 
learn about the um, prairie school architecture. And when my father and mother got together and decided to build a house, he built it after the principles of the Frank Lloyd Wright studio architecture. And it really was built in phases around me as I was growing up. So first there was just my parents, then my dad built a very small house. Then my brother came along and me and my dad added a piece to the house. And it grew in a rather organic way in a circle. So it started with the core of the house, just a single bedroom, bathroom, kitchen. And then he added a fireplace room, living room type place, and upstairs, downstairs, bedrooms for the kids, living room, and the whole thing connected around an inner courtyard. Um, the, the living room with all of my dad's books was kind of the center of the house. And that's where I saw so many books on Japanese architecture and Japanese gardens and various aspects of Japanese culture. And that kind of intrigued me to explore various you know, aspects of Japanese culture as I was going through my education. So the first one I found was Aikido. And that was right when I was finishing college. No, sorry, right when I was getting into college. And then I, um, I started pursuing Aikido, whether I was in college or post-college job, and then in graduate school, when I moved from Minnesota to California, I went to grad school first in Berkeley, got my master's there, and I would go to Aikido class as often as they would offer it. Um, yeah, so Aikido became very important to me, and I kept it up as I was going through my, my education and then my early career. And I found uh, Kyudo actually through Aikido. It's sort of interesting. Um, there was an Aikido school I was joining. It was in Redwood City, led by Frank Duran Sensei, very excellent instructor. He opened his school to a Kyudo class one summer. I decided to try it. I watched the, the archers shooting with these very large bows. You know Kyudo, you know Kyudo is, uh, we use a bow that's seven feet high. And uh, it's very impressive the first time you see it in person. So I thought, oh, I should try that. And I did try that. And that ended up being my first experience with Kudo in an Aikido dojo. I was introduced to my, my teacher. My, my first teacher was Yoshiko Buchanan Sensei. And I owe her a lot for the foundation of my Kudo. She was instrumental in all of the development of the early days of my Kudo. So um, where do you want to take it from here? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great opening. And um, it talks a little bit about how you got introduced to Japanese culture and then kind of spread it through or continue that line into your martial arts. But I was just wondering, how did that upbringing of yours, whether it's like the creativity of your dad interested in other cultures, kind of inform the direction of your education and then your, your choice of career? That's an interesting question. You know, some people's parents push them into law, medicine, science, um, you know, something to gain a lot of money or whatever. Um, I think with, with my parents, they, they appreciate education and they understood the value that an education could do to develop your mind and open up possibilities. Uh, one of the things my father reflected on often during his days at the Frank Lloyd Wright Taliesin studio was they had these weekly music or reading or other cultural days where someone would come and share their, their art. They might be passionate about opera singing. So they would gather and this person would share their opera singing. And, uh, it's this kind of gathering and learning about the arts that I grew up with. And so I explored uh, first music. I became a violin player. I still have my violin. I, I did put it aside for many years as I was going through life, but I've recently picked it up again. And um, the music and the arts are something that I feel passionately about. I grew up with music in my house. My father was a a lover of classical music. He had a huge collection of LPs, you know, the old vinyl. And uh, I remember going to sleep, trying to ask my father to turn things down. In our house, it was the kid asking the dad to turn down the music. 
and somehow says it's the other way around. So, um, yeah, just thinking about those times, am I, it, it's the liberal arts that, that really resonate, resonated with my family and therefore with me and my upbringing. So I look for many things. I'm not just going to be single channeled into one, um, one pursuit. I want to bring in the various aspects of that pursuit. And I find that if I jump over to, to Kudo, I find that I can bring a lot of things together in Kudo because I've been able to build something, right? I grew up in a house being built around me. Now I have the chance to, I had the chance to build a Q dojo and turn that into something that's really living and vibrant and becomes a destination for people. Yeah, that's a wonderful way of describing that. And the other side of the practice and building the structure, like I have seen pictures of your the Q dojo, it's like an amazing piece of art. Um, the, the other side of doing this practice is the the culture and, and the tradition. And one thing that I was really interested in, I really wanted to focus this podcast on was these uh, weapon arts in some ways and the ones that didn't aren't in popular culture like karate or judo in the Olympics. It, it's something that has stuck more to like these roots and these very strict traditions. Um, the reason why I'm bringing this up and the reason why I want to ask about your education and your upbringing uh, is because I'm also very super interested in the venture and startup world. And they're always about trying new things, about breaking existing rules, about like just going crazy and, and trying to make big bets and stuff. And that's very antithetical of these martial arts. So I'm just wondering, how did that all come together for for you and um, in being in that world and also doing this kind of type of martial art? <laughs> That's a really great question because it, it exposes a dichotomy in, in my life and perhaps in yours, where I'm very interested in emerging technology and the leading edge of, of tech and science. And yet I also love the, the deep cultural aspect of Kudo, right? I've joined up with the old, I've, well, I was accepted as a member of the Ogasawara Ryu, which is an 850 year old school of traditional Japanese art, uh, etiquette, archery, and horse archery. And, um, you know, being able to explore the history, whether it's of Kudo, of martial arts in general, or of music or history, and then reflect on where that history has brought us and where can it go in the future? I mean, there's no way to invent something new if you have no idea what happened before, right? We have to look at the past and see what works. More than that, we have to see what doesn't work. And then your ideas reflecting on what you've learned about whether it's history or music or art or science or you know, use your creativity and put all of these pieces together and that's where your intellect comes in. And that's where there are individuals who have the fire to get into corporate venturing or VC, you know, venture capital, or, or other types of emerging tech can advance, I think. It just, you're, we're puzzle solvers. We're finding problems, we're finding solutions, and we're trying to put them all together. But the history and the appreciation of what people have done before has to be a deep component, a big part of what we do. Yeah, I actually hadn't thought about that aspect of when you're trying to create something new, unless you know what happened in the past, you're just going to redo the same mistakes uh, again. So it's kind of like um, passing down that tradition is also passing down knowledge of what's worked and what's not worked over, mm -hmm. over time. Um, so maybe talk about as you're kind of developing in your practice, uh, you went from Aikido, so you already had some introduction to Japanese culture, Japanese etiquette and all that. But now diving into Kido and Okasawara Ryu, which is so much more than that, how did you, what, what was that like uh, in the very beginning? And how did you start incorporating more of that into your, uh, outside of your practice, your, your outside of your uh, regular day life and job? Hmm. I'm rather fortunate in that I've been able to find work with companies that have connections with Japan. So right after grad, well, before I went to my PhD program, I was in a 
you know, uh, U.S. Geological Survey doing some science work on on, on land and, and resource and water related topics. And I got into post-graduate school work into the semiconductor industry with companies that are based in the U.S. but working in Japan or based in Japan but offices in the U.S. And having that kind of um, connection to Japan allowed me to have a physical presence both in the U.S. and in Japan. And so this, this year of the global pandemic has been completely, you know, novel for everybody. And for myself, I just stopped traveling. I had this whole calendar of travel that was going to occupy 2020. I just threw it away, obviously. Um, but the work and the martial arts in, in my world, they come hand in hand, right? I work to have a living to be able to support myself. I do the martial arts to expand my mind and find something physical and, and um, put together the different aspects of mind and body. But we can't do just one or the other. Well, I guess you could, but it would be hard to sustain a life in just martial arts, I think, without having some kind of income. Uh, the philosophy of the Kudo that I follow and that the ANKF, the Japan, the international Kudo organizations and the Ogoswaru we all have the philosophy that you have work, uh, you have income from work and your income doesn't come from your instruction of Kudo. So I, I you know, I, work has always been important to me and a passion. And once that is set, then I find where can I fit in Kudo? And in my life today, I'm able to fit in Kudo by, uh, if I'm able to travel to Japan, I might have a business trip. And then I do back to back with a Kudo trip. Um, my company is quite accommodating about that. They understand that my, uh, the, the fact that I go to Japan for Kudo is a benefit to my company because they see that I have a passion for wanting to share ideas and learn new things. And if I'm there and I spend some personal time outside, alongside of a business trip, that's totally fine. You know, um, not everybody is, is so fortunate in that regard, but since my company will let me do it, I will do it for sure. And then, um, rambling into the, the experiences in Japan, I've been able to have experiences inside of uh, Kudo studios and, um, you know, traditional Kudo studios, also the modern government supported ones in Tokyo, the Meiji Jingu, also the Budokan and the, the Kyoto large Kudo uh, facilities and also private ones that are in someone's home. What I've seen when in these travels and these experiences of Kyudo in Japan is what a Kyudo facility can and should be like. Here in the US, we are in a situation where we don't have government support of Kyudo, unlike in Japan where it's a culturally important activity. So it's supported by government and there's lots of Q-dojo that were built by the government. In the US and in many other countries in the world, that's not the case. So you have to rely on individuals to, to pick up the slack there or you rent a facility. So that's what most people do. They rent a university or a college or a high school gymnasium or a community center. And these are great places to learn the art. And what I wanted to do though, once I had some, I had achieved my first level teaching credential, Renchi degree in 2009, I got my uh, Rokudan in 2010. And it got me starting to think about, well, maybe this is the time to start sharing what I know. And having grown up in a house of an architect, having a building built around me as I grew up, I was inspired to build a Q-Dojo. And so, I wanted to carry those ideas that I had seen, the Q-Dojo I had seen in Japan, and the feeling of the best practice, the, the, the feeling I had when I was in those Q-Dojo was just so pure, you just focus. And I wanted to bring that feeling of beauty into a place that I could build here in California and then share with others. 
So it was a long, well, spent a couple of years looking for a Kudo, well, a piece of land I could build on. And uh, that was, I can tell you that was an interesting process. You start looking for land around the San Francisco Bay Area and you quickly realize how much land can cost. Or if you start looking for a building that's large enough for Kudo, I mean, you have to have 28 meters, just the shooting distance, plus more behind the target for safety, plus more behind where the archers enter, plus, right, infrastructure, right? You need lighting and water and utilities and this and that and the other. Um, so the search for land was a, about a two-year process where I was, I had a few criteria. Had to have a certain size for this. You had to have a certain um, closeness to where I worked and where I lived. I, would, I even considered some places where I would have to fly to, just maybe a short flight. Uh, but more ideally would be a place I could drive to. And then I had to add the criteria of aesthetics because when I started looking for land that was semi-affordable in the Bay Area, you're tending to be either in a warehouse district or in a very unsafe neighborhood. And those aren't so good for building a, a Kudo facility. Warehouse district is um, pretty sterile, although they can have great buildings. You can do some great indoor Kudo in a warehouse district, so nothing to knock on, on warehouse districts. Um, I did look at a very interesting property that would have allowed for long distance shooting. Normally in Kudo, we shoot at 28 meters. Antechi is 60 meters, and you can't even shoot longer than that. So long properties were, were int of interest for a while, and I found one property that was listed. It was actually a quarter mile long and 30 feet wide. So what it was was a railroad spur in between a bunch of uh, warehouses, and they were just selling that little strip of land, quarter mile lot long, 30 feet wide, would have been wide enough to do Enteki Kudo for sure, but it's so small, you can't build on something like that. So it was just something to amuse myself as I was looking at other properties. And I ended up finding a piece of land, two of them actually. What I bought was property from two landowners that were physically adjacent touching, but they were not being promoted by a realtor together. They were be being promoted by two different real estate agencies separately. And if you looked on the real estate sites like Zillow, they weren't even located next to each other. Someone had make, made a map error. So one of these properties was located about five miles down the road when in fact they physically touched. And uh, I, I found, I explored the place. It was completely overgrown, ivy everywhere. Ivy was growing up all the redwood trees. I found out later there was a, a garage on the property, I had walked past it without knowing it was there because the ivy had grown over it. So it was it had thatched of ivy and redwood duff all over it. Redwood trees shed, so they dropped branches and all kinds of things that, that ended up piling up and made this garage disappear. So I put together an offer with a uh, real estate attorney that helped me reach out to the two owners and I gave them a, a simple cash offer contingent that the other owner also sold because I needed to buy both pieces of property to have enough space. This property had no water, no power, no internet, obviously, um, no um, access to sewer. So all of that infrastructure had to be put in place. So I gave them a really, really cheap you know, offer because I didn't want to pay too much for something that I would not have enough money left over to build on. And uh, to the surprise of everyone, they accepted, both parties accepted. And in 2009, I became a landowner. And then I basically treated it as my second backyard. I was living on the peninsula. I had about a 45 minute drive out to this property and it would come out every weekend and practice Kudo outside. And then it would start to get cold, so I brought out a little propane heater. And then it would start to rain, so I built a little plastic covering that I could shoot under. 
And then I started, you know, cleaning up all of the the overgrown ivy that had taken over the place and started contacting an architect to see what I could do about building. So that took a couple of years to, you know, start the planning process and figure out how I could build and then work with the county and all of the engineers that you have to deal with and all of the permits and all of the fees and this and that and the other. So my advice to anyone who's considering building, just understand it's going to take longer and it's going to be more expensive than you expect. But so all in all, great. How many, how many properties did you get sent and did you have to look over and reject? I guess I looked, well, it, it was my exploration. I didn't engage a realtor for the search process. I just learned how to use different web searching options and I searched and I went out to go see them and I engaged a realtor, a, a friend who was a real estate attorney to put out the offer. And I probably looked at, in my screening process, I might've looked at about 20 different properties and this was the only one that was really a possibility. There was one other that was out right on the Pacific Ocean, but it would have been in the zone of Highway 1, which is a picturesque you know, road going all the way up the coast of California. And it would have required zoning um, exceptions to be able to build anything within view of the ocean. And so I knew that would be a nightmare. And plus the owner didn't want to sell at the price I wanted to pay. So that one deselected itself. So you're at the point now that you have an architect, you're starting to think about what the dojo could look like. I, I was just wondering now that maybe you can even just look around. You, you said you mentioned you've, you've been to so many different types of dojo styles, like city run, large ones to small ones. What would you like say that if, if someone from one of those dojos that you had visited came over and say, oh, I could see the influence, or I could see this reminds me of this dojo and this reminds me of this dojo, what is like the the kind of range of aesthetics that you have been able to uh, take from all these places that you've had the chance of visiting? Yeah, I've seen very traditional dojos. So uh, Kubota Fumiro Sensei invited me into his dojo many times in Tokyo and it was family handed down in his family for quite a number of decades. And it was very, well, it's very active dojo today. It's very traditional with a little wood paneling. And I know many dojos are of that style. They've got a dark wood floor and a dark wood paneling and they just feel so warm. And the practice there also felt very, very warm. So from that dojo, I captured this, the, the feeling. I wanted to re recreate that feeling in the Redwood Q Dojo. And from the more modern Q Dojo, the, the Meiji Jingu, the maybe even the community center dojos, I wanted, and also from my, my father, my, my dad's experience with Frank Lloyd Wright, I wanted to bring in the clean lines and the simplicity of more modern architecture. Um, and as far as the coloring, uh, the color inside the dojo, you see my walls here are quite white. See outside in the forest, it's very dark. And having a wood paneled dojo in a, in a very dense redwood forest, it would just feel really enclosed and dark. As it is right now, it's January, middle of winter, and we don't get any direct sun here. The trees are high enough that the sun doesn't come down. We have to wait till spring, summer, and fall. Then we get some lovely, uh, lovely sun. So to counter the effect of the shade, I decided to make the inside of the dojo very bright. So we have a light wood floor rather than a dark wood floor. And we have white walls rather than paneling the more traditional. So I think it's a combination of those traditional and those more modern dojos I've seen in Japan. And I tried to bring in the best of all of those. And then as far as if anyone from one of those places were to come here, they would recognize a Q Dojo because all Q Dojos have something in common. They all have a place where the archers are walking, which is typically indoors. They all have the Yamichi, the place where the arrows fly. They all have a covered 
um, Azuchi, the target bank, which has a roof over it. And there's a beautiful publication that I believe it was the ANKF put out and it's on how to design a Q-Dojo. And it was some years before I bought this property, I learned that our local uh, Q-Do instructor here, uh, Earl Hartman, he's one of the Northern California Bay Area instructors. He, uh, he's a translator for his profession. He happened to have translated this document and he put a copy in my hands. And so I put a copy of this document in my architect's hands. And so this, docu this document helped guide the architect and I guided the architect as well in creating a structure that is much like the Q-Dojo that you see in Japan. So what would be your influence into this? What are things that based on like a templated dojo, you had to put in your, your thoughts and your feeling, your spirit into this place? Mm. For that, I need to expand the question to include my husband, Tim, because together we are teaching at this dojo. And I think we've turned this from just a sterile building into a, a destination place where people want to come to learn about Kudo. So uh, after the architect left and the planning department said, check, you're okay, you can go move in. You know, that's when things started to really, we started to add the artistry to this place, right? One of the first things was adding the Yamichi. There's these little stones, they're walking stones to, that you can take when you're going to retrieve your arrows. So you're walking from the dojo structure to the target bank structure. And I had found a place in a nearby town. A, a woman was getting rid of some old paving stones. And I, she said, well, they're free to anybody who wants to pick them up. You just come pick them up. And I contacted her. I said, well, I could use those. And I brought them back here and um, I dropped them off. They were very heavy, right? I had to load them up all one by one into my, I had a Highlander at the time. I dropped them off. I put them in the driveway and then I left on a business trip. And then I came back two days later and Tim, my husband, had put them into the beautiful Yamichi. They're all beautifully artistically laid out. So that's our walking path. And uh, I added the, the sand azuchi. That was something that we wanted to recreate in, you know, in Japan and America, sometimes azuchi are made of styrofoam or other modern materials. Traditionally, they're made of, of sand. I did some interviews with various dojo owners in Japan uh, to find out what kind of sand they use and do they blend their sand with sawdust or dirt or whatever. And there's also a few book resources that speak about the composition of Azuchi material. So I, um, yeah, I just pulled together what would work best here in, in this environment and yeah, added that. I've added a lot of the fabric things to the dojo. So in front of the target bank, you often want to have a maku. It's the cloth that keeps high arrows from hitting the back wall and it just sort of finishes the, uh, the structure. So I sewed one out of an indoor outdoor fabric and that was good fun because we had it laid on the dojo floor, had the sewing machine on the floor and you use your hand on the foot pedal to, to bring the fabric back and uh, so that, and that was a nice little personal touch. And then uh, we ended up buying a, a professionally made maku as well for the dojo opening. And we bring that one out for special events. So that's the little purple thing you see behind me on the floor. It's the maku. We had it out for uh, the New Year's, the Shinnen Shakai event. And uh, to dry it out before we store it, we store it, put it on the dojo floor and put on the dehumidifier. So if I look around, other things we've added in here are, you know, the, the wood things, the, the arrow stand, the yatate, the bow stand behind us. Um, I added some framed charts, which are the kudo hasetsu, the eight steps of kudo. So each one of those is one of the steps. So I take a beginner and I put them in front of the charts and I say, you can read and you can see these are the, the, the diagrams that you see in the back of the kudo manual. And so they all can understand what it is they're, they should be looking at and looking like when they're starting to practice Kudo. And we also have a, a nice uh, shrine. We have a small Shinto shrine in the dojo. It was from Tim, it was from his early days in Japan. 
he lived in Japan for five years and um, brought back certain very nice little bits of it here to California. And uh, we have a scroll in the dojo that shows a, an Ogosawara uh, Yabusame archer. So yeah, some of the things are handmade, bow stands, some are handcrafted, but brought back from Japan. And others are just the aesthetics like lighting, right? I wanted to do energy conserving, conserving uh, LED lighting. So all the lights in the dojo are LED, all the lights in the uh, Mataba are LED. Yeah, that's, that's such a great look at when you, when you think about building a Q dojo, a lot of people, um, you need to start with the functionality of it, but because of all the experience that you've had, you've been able to incorporate other parts of your life. You've mentioned like your dad's architecture school. You've mentioned like these different aspects and even, even the lights kind of touch on your science and kind of new, uh, I guess, the future forward type of thinking. Um, so we, we have this dojo that kind of is like this culmination of all these years of your practice and is also leading into the future. But I was just thinking in terms of that, that past, that history of your practice of Kudo, were there any particular memorable experiences that you can speak about, ones that are influential? We talk about like liminal moments, things that are either are stuck in your mind that says it's a turning point in, in your practice or a turning point in how you see the community and what you want to bring back to, to the art? Yeah, thanks for that question. It gets back to my first introduction to the Ogasawara Ryu, which was through my husband, Tim. At the time we weren't yet married and I found out that he was doing Yabusame performance and I had the chance to go to Japan and, and watch this performance. And at the end of Yabusame, the horse archery is very energetic, right? Thousands of people are lined up along this horse track and the horses gallop at full speed and they're shooting at these three targets and it's all very kind of inspiring. And after the performance, all of the Yabusame archers and the assistants, they get together in this beautiful, um, architecturally designed room in, uh, in, in Nikko, at the Nikko Toshogu. And I was invited by Tim to come up and meet Kiyomoto Ogosawara. And he's the, the next generation to be leading the Ogosawara Ryu. Uh, he'll be the 32nd continuous generation heir. And um, I had in my mind to ask I didn't know if it was appropriate to ask, but I had fallen in love with the whistle arrow ceremony. It's called hikime, the whistle arrow. And it's a regular arrow with a bulb tip on it that's hollow and it has holes. And as it flies through the air, it makes this just beautiful ethereal sound. And I'd seen them shot when there's a special ceremony or special event or an opening of something or even the birth of a child. And uh, I know that the Oswara does this hikime ceremony. So being an American, I thought, well, you can always ask, right? <laughs> and so I was introduced to Kimoto Ogasawara by Tim. And I asked, so would you be willing to perform this hikime ceremony? We're, we have a dojo we've just built. We'd like to do an opening ceremony. And uh, to my surprise, he said, yes. He said, yes, we will do this. Let's set it up. He explained about what the procedure involved. He needed five assistants and he would bring two of them from Japan. So I arranged for their airfare. We arranged for a house for them to stay in. So for the three from Japan and I had a lot of good Kudo friends from around the world come and join us for this event. And then, uh, so Kiyomoto Sensei instructed us all in how to perform hikime ceremony. So he shot the whistle arrow twice, once from inside the dojo across the shooting field. And that was for, it's a, it's a ceremony that signifies the purification of the land. And he shot the second arrow from behind the Q dojo up and over the roof. So it went up and over the Q dojo beyond the Azuchi and it landed in the trees behind the 
the Matoba. And it landed safely and the arrow was then brought back and it was then presented to me by Kiyomoto Sensei for the dojo to keep and we have it on display now. That experience of him accepting us as basically worthy of, of this performance was incredibly meaningful to me, especially after I found out that this Hikime ceremony at Redwood Q Dojo was the very first time that it had been performed by the Ogoswara outside of Japan. Shortly thereafter, he then performed the same uh, Hikime ceremony in Europe in two or three different locations, and he's now performed it in different places around the world. But until this time, the Ogasawara has been a very, uh, well, rather closed. In Japan, for sure, they have thousands of members, but outside they had no exposure other than an occasional video might, you might see. And it's with the uh, Kiyomoto Sensei's generation. He's now expanding that. And I feel honored that we were instrumental in helping that in international expansion of Hikime and of Yogoswara arts and traditions be able to happen. Yeah, wow, what a big responsibility too to continue that line and uh, and how, how do you see that in America? And like we, we talk about martial arts, like there's the more modern ones and then Kudo is, yeah, a little more traditional, but then you have something like this, which is like so tied to history and culture of Japan. Is that, how do you, how do you see that as something that you bring to the Western world and in, in what way? Because like, yeah, martial arts, you can learn the physical aspects and that's, that's their entry. But for something like this, like, is it more like an art piece? Is it like understanding a painting in a way? Or how do you, how do you look at it? Yeah, I do have some responsibility for trying to share these arts in America and internationally. You know, I, I am one of the directors of the International Kudo Federation. I'm currently president of the American Kudo Renmei, president of the Northern California Kudo Federation, along with the Redwood Kudojo. And I think what we're trying to do is help to share Kudo uh, globally, but we have to start locally. Um, I was fortunate to have resources and have things come together so that I could build a Kudojo. And so I opened this to people who want to learn this art. There are many who don't have this resource, but they do have maybe a gymnasium they have access to or a warehouse or even an outdoor backyard. And when it's cold, like the folks practicing in the um, you know, northern climates in the winter or the southern climates in the summer, um, you know, indoor places have a lot that they can offer as well. So um, we're trying to broaden kudos approachability by letting people know about it. So the, the AKR, we have a web page and we have a Facebook page, um, but we're trying to put together a video right now. So I've got a, a committee of AKR members from different states, different Renmei, who are coming together and they're putting together the template for our first Kudo promotional video. And we'd like to get that out on YouTube and whatever other social media channels that we can. And that idea is not to pr promote Kudo at one place, it's to promote that Kudo is available, well, wherever it is available, right? So then we'll link people to how to find Kudo in their hometown or in their state or somewhere in their vicinity. Um, the challenge is though that Kudo isn't everywhere, at least not in the United States and not in certainly Canada and the Americas. Um, we, there are areas where you would have to drive for many, many, many hours to find Kudo. That continues to be a challenge. And I, I get an, a, a request from time to time from someone who's just really far away from here. And nevertheless, a lot of people are up for that challenge. Uh, one student who practiced here for a short time she then took a long break and I thought, well, she's tried it and left. Well, she's just gotten back in touch and will plan to come again. She'll have to drive an hour and a half each way to get here, but she's willing to do it. 
I've also got three members who are in the southern part of the state. They travel when it's safe, you know, post pandemic, they'll probably start traveling again. Um, you know, so some people are willing to travel three hours or five hours to find their keto. Others are quite physically distant. I've got a few in different states who join us by video class only. And uh, in 2020, uh, Redwood Keto Joe, we conducted 18 video classes for our group members. And I see that a lot of people are doing this around the world. Even the August Water U, they're doing video classes. They have a session starting in 2021. Um, there's a gentleman in Ecuador who's offered some video classes as well. And what I'd like these folks to do is to explain what they're doing. They're sharing their knowledge. They're not out there trying to become your teacher. And you know, they're just trying to share what it is that they've learned over some years of training. And if video is the way to do it, well, it's, it's certainly a complimentary way. It's very difficult to start from scratch and just learn by video. I don't think one can become proficient at Kudo by watching a video but it's a tool in the toolbox. It's, it's something that we have to use, especially when we're in the middle of a pandemic and it's not safe to get together otherwise. Yeah, one of the things that I hear a lot uh, when, when I'm speaking to different people doing this practice around the world was when they first got started, there was nothing. And then just getting over that hump, finding a space, finding a regular practice time, being able to import, equipment that was already a challenge. And now there are a lot of people that have, are hitting that next kind of roadblock in terms of how do they grow their local communities or how do they deal with, I don't know, interpersonal relationships and stuff. Um, I was wondering if there's anything you can share in terms of challenges you've had to overcome throughout like this history, just to kind of share a little bit about like that at it's not supposed to be easy and at sometimes there will be challenges and that you've dealt with some of some of that yourself as well. Mm. Yes, this is a very deep question. Thanks for asking it. Um, I, I reflected on this question and, you know, life, life is difficult. It's, it's like anything that's important to do, it, it will be difficult to do. And some things are so incredibly difficult. They, almost tear you down. So in my life, I've had a few difficult situations I'm happy to share with you. Um, probably the top of that list was losing my husband, my first husband. He committed suicide after a lifetime of dealing with uh, mental health issues, particularly depression. And having gone through a, you know, 25 years with him and seeing the difficulties faced by people facing mental illness, not just the illness itself, but the difficulty in finding the right treatment and finding a path forward. It made me very sensitive and compassionate for people that face this challenge. So when it's people around me or in my Kudo group, um, I, I hope to be very open and, and help, helpful to help people who just need a, maybe a friendly um, voice or an ear to listen. Um, another challenge I went through right around the same time was leaving from my first Kudo teacher and deciding to embark on this dojo building and opening up Redwood Q Dojo. And I did so with the highest respect. I, I, I pay my deepest respect to Yoshiko Buchanan Sensei because she brought me into Kudo and brought me up in Kudo. And I hope that I can share the passion for the Kudo that she had and then use this building, which is a kudo do to help share that art with other people. And, you know, the challenges of building a kudojo were you know, many days of wondering, can I get this done? Can I get this paid for? Can I, if I build it, will people come? Um, good friend Earl Hartman, he said, if you build it, we will come. And, it was true, people did come. And uh, 
when some doors closed, others opened. And so the life I've had, I'm very fortunate to have had these experiences, both the difficult ones and the really fun ones, because without the ups and without the downs, right, life is just kind of flat and boring. And I never wanted my life to be boring. If I may just ask a follow-up question to a couple of those points that you mentioned, um, in terms of being more aware of struggles that your students might be having or anyone else that's doing this practice, in, in Kido, there's a common term when you're struggling, especially when you're sitting in Kiza for a long time, which is gaman. It's like this Kido uh, Japanese term where you just have to deal with it. Or in, if we translate it to like Western kind of view it be like be a man or something like that so how do you how have you been able to to look at that from these two perspectives now that you've had to face this um challenge with your your husband dealing with mental illness and being on the side recognizing that it exists and then like compensating for it in whatever way well there's no easy answer for this question that you ask um I try to share my experience with others, sometimes by hearing that someone else has gone through something. It helps the person that's feeling that issue feel less alone and be able to cope and you know, have that come on sense. Um, and then it's training. We, yes, Kiza is difficult. Well, that don't let that make you stop. Let's find some ways to make it more easy. Some of the ways to make it more doable is to do it more. And so we train in Kiza. I found through Tim and the Ogaswara School an exercise that they use for horse archery for Yabusame. It's great for Kiza. So we teach it in our school. It's called Kisha Taiso. If you ever go to um, get a chance to see where they practice uh, yabusame. You'll see them out before their yabusame practice doing this. It's a squat where you're sort of holding your body in a very low position. And then you have to repeat these stretches, which the timing of which mimics your being on a horse and being on a run from target one to target two or target two to target three. So if you can do this Kisha Taiso exercise 50 times, you can last for three targets on, um, the, on the Yabusame run, on the Baba. But the first time you try it, you'll be able to do it about three times or four or maybe five. And then you work up to 10 and do that for a few weeks and then work up to 20. And so during 2020 COVID lockdown, Tim and I were working ourselves up Starting at, I think we were at 20, we went up to 30, and this year we're now doing 50. So persevering, right? Just deciding this is what you're going to do. Have a point in your day when you do it, right? Don't always put it off because then you'll be tired at the end of the day and you won't do it. So for us, we go on a walk and we always have a place. It's a certain tree we see or a certain valley that opens up. And at that spot, we do Kisha Taisel exercise. So it's... Everyone's got to find their own way, but understand that you're not alone. Others are trying to go down that path and trying to solve the difficult problems just like you are. Um, so we, we're shifting from these challenges that you have to face to some of your positive experiences. I know you mentioned that joining the Ogasawari Ryu was a big thing. Um, you mentioned Tim a few times. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your relationship and how do you... Um, how do you two work together in Kudo, whether it's for your own practice or building the dojo or what kind of things do you consult him with in terms of being having your responsibility as like the president of these organizations? And how how is he kind of what what has he taken on just because he's not here? Maybe you can speak about some of his accomplishments or some of the things that he mm -hmm. enjoys to do. Yeah, well, Tim is a bit of a renaissance man in terms of his his career. He's been a um, video fan. He's been a camera photographer. He's been a writer. He's been a camera designer. He's been an idea 
he's been a next, next generation, what's going to be coming down the turnpike in the future kind of guy. And he's very creative. He's been a farmer. Um, he's learned Kudo. He, he traveled to Japan and lived there for five years in order to learn Kudo. He got the invitation from Onuma Sensei and uh, spent five years in the 1980s moving from his well, he was, he's maybe showed on and he was going on by the time those five years were done. Um, I think that was quite formative for him. It was being in Japan was a important time. And once in a while, when we're at Meiji Jingu at a seminar and he sees an old friend from, you know, 20 years ago, um, he can get quite emotional. It's, 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 Japan is very, uh, very deep, very, um, important to him and to me. And in fact, when we got married, we decided to hold two wedding ceremonies. The first was in the Q Dojo. So we were wearing Western clothing and we had friends and family here in the dojo. And then through Tim's connection with the Guji, the head shrine priest at Niko Toshogu, we were able to do a second wedding ceremony at the Niko shrine. And being gowned in kimono by a professional kimono person. And Tim had to do yabusame one day, followed by the wedding the next day. So he had no time whatsoever. So me, I've got this lady who's helping me get dressed in the kimono and doing makeup and hair and everything. And he had to go from yabusame um, preparation and then scurry back and get ready for, and dress himself and get ready, I think in about 20 minutes or something. And um, he looked very good though. So yeah, there are things that now we've shared uh, through the Japan connection that we bring to our Kudo training. So we created Redu Kudojo as a 501c3 nonprofit corporation. So we have to have officers. I'm president of the organization, Tim's vice president. As far as our running of the dojo, I usually lead class and teach class and then I, I have um, days when I can't or he wants to, and then he steps in, he leads class. But when we're in regular practice, we just sort of seamlessly go back and forth. I might be leading a group that's more beginning and he might be working with the group that's shooting at 28 meter distance. Um, when we're working for projects for the AKR, for the American Kudo Renmei or or even for the dojo members, I might write something up that's going to be a message and he'll help me proofread it because he's just, he's a British guy. He's born in America, but raised in the UK. And um, his sense of language and mine are kind of similar but different because of our different backgrounds. And it's quite valuable to have that second pair of eyes looking at something. So we try to message things together when we send them out. Um, and then his training in Yabusame has brought a new aspect of, of teaching that we can do here in the dojo or training mostly. But so for Yabusame, most people don't have a horse in their backyard or certainly not in their dojo. So Tim built a wooden horse called Mokuba. And the Mokuba is the training instrument for the horse archery. And so now we have a Mokuba here in the dojo. And um, we were given a, a saddle, an old saddle, and it was sort of in not so good condition, but uh, a lady who was retiring from Yabusame ended up through a, uh, through an, uh, through a Facebook Kudo connection, I found someone who introduced her to me and I, we were able to acquire her, her saddle and all of the bridle and the stirrups and everything that goes with, with the Mokuba or the Yabusame attire. So now we're all set for adding Mokuba workshops when we do additional workshops once things open up again. So his, uh, Tim's woodcrafting skills have definitely added a lot of color and character to the dojo. Mokachan is her name. She's a wooden horse. Uh, she's front and center in the Q dojo. So you usually at like the, the end of these interviews, I, I sometimes ask, okay, if, what, what kind of message some person wants to share. And I'll ask you that later. But a lot of times they're just saying, oh, if anyone wants to, is like in town and wants to do some practice, they can feel free to drop by. 
but just thinking about your dojo, I'm thinking it's like a destination. Like you, it's no not that you come to San Francisco and let's drop by. It's more like let's go to that dojo and in the way let's also visit San Francisco. So if someone really wanted to come and experience that, like I, I would love just to see, be in a in a redwood forest and doing something like this, and then also practice a little bit of um, on on. What's her name again? I forget. The wooden horse. Mokachan. On Mokachan. It just seems like an amazing thing. So if someone were to want to do that, what's the best way of connecting with you? And is there a timing during the year? I guess, like, not with the pandemic withstanding. Um, what would be some way of someone connecting with you and coming to practice and seeing the dojo and doing that? I welcome visitors to the dojo. We've had many, and uh, during the pandemic, it's been certainly slower, but nevertheless, we still have people come from time to time. We'll have them wear face masks during pandemic and we're socially distant. We double the CDC recommended social distancing and we do face mask wearing, and we're doing practice outside only right now following guidelines in our area, but I very much welcome visitors, whether it's during the pandemic or even even better after the pandemic is over. We do hope to open up again with workshops, with seminars, with uh, Kudo classes, with Mokaba training. Um, we've got an annual, it's usually in August, we've got an annual uh, workshop series going with uh, Kiyomoto Sensei or one of his senior Ogasawaraju students who will come from Japan and instruct and uh, I, I welcome visitors. We will um, show them some, something interesting for sure. That's great. Um, so just uh, getting to the end of this, I'd like to ask you some of those rapid fire questions, uh, just uh, a little more fun and short, hopefully to get to know you. Uh, the first one is, do, do you have a quote or a proverb uh, that you like or you live by, practice by, you think about? Yeah, I think I, I have two. One is, life is endless effort. So Tim and I tell each other that when we're in Kai and things are difficult, that's the you know, full draw form. Endless effort, endless effort. You know, that means not yet, not yet. Keep going, keep going. So life is endless effort. That's my favorite one. And the other one is uh, things will smooth out. Things will even out. You know, sometimes you're in the depth of depression or you're just super happy and things are great. It's the ups and downs that keep life interesting. Honestly, it's, it's the challenges that, that help us to craft uh, a valuable and meaningful life. And so don't, um, I just recommend people to, live through, endure the downs and don't get too excited about the ups. They'll both be part of your past. They'll be your history and all things will level out. Yeah, a nice way of saying regression to the mean, <laughs> the scientific. Yeah, term. erosion from a geological perspective. My education, my bachelor's degree was in geology. So, you know, nature wants to erode mountains down and it wants to fill in the low spots. Uh, do you have a favorite stage of the Hasatsu and why? Yeah, I would say Dozukuri and why. So Hasatsu is the eight steps of Kyudo and Dozukuri is the step where you're focusing on your, your straightness, your shoulders are level, your vertical line is vertical, you've got your shoulders, hips, feet all aligned. But beyond, being a step of the Hasetsu, you should have Dozukuri when you step in the dojo, right? It doesn't even need a separate step called Dozukuri, except that we do other things at that moment in the Hasetsu. But the straightness of your form, whether you're just sitting in a chair or whether you're walking or whether you're sitting down for dinner or having a conversation with a friend, it's quite critical, quite key to keep your spine straight and turn straight and and um, without it, you can't do good kudo. So, and then even deeper than dozukuri is rei. Rei is the conduct of yourself, your spirit. It's what links us all together in your the etiquette of how you interact with people, and your composure, and how you address the arts, the 
Aikido or Aikido or other martial arts. Rei is something that is just underpinning everything. That's great. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time and uh, answering all these questions and going deep into your history and some of the things that you've had to face. Uh, do you have anything in closing that you want to say to the audience, some message that just to leave um, to wrap up this part of the interview? Well, if anyone out there is interested in Kudo, please reach out. I can be reached at uh, by email, maria.peterson123 at gmail.com. I can be found on Facebook by my name. I'm the person that's shooting an arrow, so you can recognize me. You can find me at the redwoodqdojo.com. You can find me at the Facebook Redwood Kudojo site as well. And happy to, happy to address any questions, especially those who are local in the Bay Area. Um, we are open for new students, even during COVID. We have protocols in place for safe training. Cool. Uh, well, I hope to talk to you again in the in the future. Um, in the meantime, hope you stay healthy, stay safe. Um, you too. Cool. All right. Take care. Right. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you. Have a great night. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode because we have a lot more exciting conversations to share as we explore the world of the traditional Japanese martial arts. The Inside Look podcast is made possible by our patrons over at Patreon. So if you enjoy this work and want them to continue, please consider supporting us for as little as a cup of coffee. There are many more ways for us to work together by connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram at tokushikai.canada and subscribing to our monthly newsletter at subscribe.tokushikai.ca. Until next time, thanks for listening.